0: I want to speak on today's tradition. I, I want to do a broad, a broad, high-level look at uh, the, the meaning of tradition, why tradition is important, and how Scripture, how Christianity, has influenced our traditions today. In Exodus 13, verse three, I'm not going to read but one verse from this. Moses says unto the people remember this day in which he came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. So Moses tells the people of Israel that they must remember the day that they were brought out of bondage. That they must remember the salvation imparted unto them by the Lord and We are told often in Scripture to remember the deeds of the Lord and to remember the heritage, where we come from. I want to start in Matthew chapter 5. Christ says, when he's preaching to the multitudes on the mountain, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This is in just a few verses a very concise explanation of the values that underlie Christian theology. We believe that the meek, will inherit the earth. Those who have strength but do not use it. It's the original word is closer to magnanimous. Uh, they who mourn, they shall be comforted. They who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. They have an expectation of righteousness in the future. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. These ideas are novel in the history of the time, prior to Christ saying these ideas out loud, they were not articulated in a way that the people living at the time had ever heard it before. Um, And I want to really rewind to actually even before Judaism, because I think if you understand the entire context, the historical context of the times leading up to this moment where Christ is speaking to the multitudes on the mountain, you'll understand just how far they had come in a few thousand years. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the Garden of Eden, and he created man and woman, and he created them in the garden. And the garden represents an orderly, sophisticated, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing place. And it's not It is different from the wilderness, which is where Adam and Eve are pushed into after the the fall. So in the beginning of time, man resided in a garden that was curated and tended by uh, Adam and Eve, who were walking with with God in the spirit of God. And so they were able to tend this garden and maintain a garden. As many of you know, I think uh, Brother Farrington might have a pretty uh, impressive garden. I think I've heard that. Um, anyone who's been to a great garden like longwood gardens knows that it takes a ton of work and a lot of order needs to be imposed on the wilderness in order for a garden to emerge. So we have the garden of Eden and then we have the fall. And after the fall human civilization looks very, very different. They are primarily in the wilderness. Most human beings prior to the written word were nomadic. Um, Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, said that life prior to history was nasty, brutish, and short. And he was right. Uh, These nomadic tribes, these indigenous peoples, uh, lived incredibly brutal, violent lives in many cases. Even today, if you study the indigenous cultures that still exist today in the world today, they're incredibly violent, um, deprived of many of the concepts that we take for granted Um, I'll give you some examples. There are tribes in Africa today that as a rite of passage at around 10 years old, the boys will have their backs pierced over the entire surface area of their back until their back resembles that of an alligator. In other primitive tribes that exist today, um, human life is so meaningless that an adult male can end the life of a small child just for the child being an irritation and there's no recourse, there's no justice, there's no rule of law. So this is the state of nature after the fall and prehistory. And we know it's true because uh, we have archeological evidence and we have the word of God that the vast majority of man, especially prior to the time of Noah um, was an extremely violent, um, bad place to be. And then we have the Jewish revolution. We have the nation of Israel, so God comes to Abraham and imparts first to Abraham, and first he imparts to Abraham the notion of the sacrifice of the son. He says to Abraham, "Go and sacrifice your son, Isaac." And Abraham has to uh, comply. And cry, or the Lord, the f- our Lord, the Father, um, prevents Abraham from completing the sacrifice and rewards him for his obedience. Later, we have Moses, who's delivered the Ten Commandments, which I'm going to I'm going to read these. Because I think that, again, this is a very concise explanation of a number of concepts that they didn't have prior to them being spoken to Moses. So if you can imagine a world without the Ten Commandments, that's how the world was just prior to Moses receiving them. So in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord says to Moses, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house and shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So they received these Ten Commandments after escaping the bondage of slavery in the land of Egypt. Egypt is almost the polar opposite culturally from the nation of Israel um, post-Egypt. The religion of the Jews is a religion of life. The Lord provides the Ten Commandments to protect life and to make life better for people. The Egyptians had a culture of death, They worshiped animals and they, their greatest achievements are the pyramids, which are literally tombs. So prior to the Jewish world, we had the Egyptians were the pinnacle of civilization prior to, um, the nation of Israel. And even that pinnacle of civilization was still a pagan animistic, uh, animal worshiping, death worshiping. In fact, I've been to, uh, to Torino, which is a city in Italy where they've got the Egyptian Museum, the second largest collection of Egyptian antiquities in the world. And on the wall, they've got a 40-foot scroll rolled out, and that is called the Book of the Dead. And the Book of the Dead is the holy scripture for the ancient Egyptians. It's unsurprising to me that that civilization did not persist. So prior to Judaism, we have paganism, we have the worship of animals, we have the projection of the spiritual world onto the material world, onto the animals. Um, And then with Judaism, we have what's called ethical monotheism. We have the idea of a single God worthy of all praise and of uh, the idea of actual morality, objective morality, separate from the material world. Around the same time, shortly after the Jews, but prior to Christianity, we have another philosophical revolution in Greece and Rome, which is um, where we get some of the ideas that are later uh, solidified in Christ around logic and the dialectics or ha- having a conversation in order to discern truth. These are Greek and Roman ideas that I think Christ really articulates when, he, when he's called the word, the logos. Um, and then we have Christianity. And Christianity is the most important philosophical revolution, ethical revolution, moral revolution that the world has ever known, bar none. Uh, To this day, it is the single most important driving factor that contributes to all moral and uh, material progress. I want to really hammer this point home, though, that... Christianity is a framework, it's a religion built on top of Judaism. We have the Old Testament for a reason. We're called to remember the deeds of the Lord and remember the heritage of our people and the heritage of our ideas. And so that's why we need to read the Old Testament, and especially Exodus chapter 20, 21, where I think that people read the Old Testament. I read the Old Testament the first time and thought, this is really difficult, challenging, uh, legalistic writing, and... I wasn't sure what the benefit was to me as a Christian. Today, I can see that all of the laws actually were taking an ancient people out of the darkness and teaching them how to live civilized lives. They, give, they gave uh, human beings the right to live. They gave women the right to marital rights. They gave um, criminals the rights to due process and to a, uh, uh, being judged by a, a court um the same word, actually, that they use for the judges in the Jewish culture, Elohim, is the same word um, for uh, the plural gods. So they really had a lot of respect for the rule of law. But the the Jewish culture, the largest problem with the Jewish culture, which Christ really articulates, is that it's a patriarchal elitist culture. When you read about the the nation of Israel, you're reading a story of kings, of kings and prophets and the high people in the high places. They're not like us. They're not the normal people. And they're certainly not like the people that we read about in the New Testament who are by and large, regular folks, regular sinners. They're not king. In fact, all of the kings, the people with power in the New Testament are evil. Not, I mean, all people are evil, but They are especially wicked in the New Testament. And so that inversion of values, the inversion of only the patriarchs, only the kings are valuable, it's a very egalitarian idea, and it's the first time that it emerged in history. In chapter 5, verse 17 of Matthew... Christ says, I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till earth and heaven shall pass, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law until it's all fulfilled whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven Christ says explicitly that we are to acknowledge the importance of the law for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven so what he's saying is it's not enough to merely follow the law you must transcend simply following the law and follow the spirit of God Uh, In addition to that. So it's a building on top of the law and a transcendence of the law. And then the question that we all ask ourselves is, well, how do I do even better than the law? I can't even follow the law. And what does Philippians 4.13 say? It says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So we have this uh, progress of history. We have the garden. We have the fall into prehistory. We've got the animist pagan cultures of the pre-Nation uh, uh, of Israel times. Uh, then we have the Jewish Revolution, which is a, a very important ethical, uh, point of ethical progress and evolution in the thinking of man and uh, in the relationship of man and God. And then we have the further reform of religion in the form of Christ. And Christ comes to reform the religions of the world, to reform Judaism, and they don't like him, obviously, because nobody really likes reform. People don't like change. And then we have 2,000 years of progress, um, despite the best efforts of Satan to do everything that he can to stop it. And we have modernity, so we have now. And now is a fascinating time to me because Christianity is more prevalent than it's ever been. It's all over the entire world. It is clearly, from any standard of measure, if you look at history, we would not have accomplished almost anything without having Christian moral principles underlying what we're doing. The nation of the United States wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a bunch of Christians who were escaping religious persecution and came here and said we need to create a place where we can worship freely and create uh, an ethical monotheistic nation that believes in God but does not force the belief in God. We have modernity. Modernity is mainly characterized by um, a return to pagan values, a return to idolatry, We've got the idea today that you know animals are just as valuable as humans. We've got all sorts of moral depravities from um, the sacrifice of children. We have people espousing cannibalism. We have people, and I don't want to go through these because I think it, it reflects actually what I mentioned earlier about the total moral depravity pre Judaism. Because we have it today we 've got the sacrifice of children we've got cannibalism we've got literal we've got people who pay for the blood of of the young people to because they think it's like a medical procedure to uh, keep themselves youthful uh, which is basically vampirism um, all the things that we thought were fantasies that we thought were fiction are actually true in the modern day we have zombies walking around Baltimore City totally zonked out we've got vampires i'm not it's like all the things we thought were just fiction are true and they're they're 100% real. We had an Uber driver last night tell us that um, in, his, in, in the holy books that he reads um, that, that <laughs> there are demons. Um, like in. I don't even want to talk about it. It's actually kind of it's, – it's kind of, he, he's a little bit wacky. Um, <laughs> anyway, but there are demons and they're real, and I think we all know it when we walk around um, some, some of the more morally depraved places in the world so the question is what is the solution to all these problems and I've already said you know, we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us and I think, think that the theology that we accept and believe in is really important as well I think that for me understanding depravity understanding my own tendency to do the worst possible thing and for every um, every single time the Lord urges me to do something right I have an innate tendency to try to do the opposite like Paul says what I would do I do not what I uh, wouldn't I do And Jesus says that he came to call sinners from repentance. So there is an aspect of changing our behaviors in a way that can make the world a better place and return us to the garden. I'm going to close out with a reading from Romans 12. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I think that it's a great, again, it's a concise explanation of the moral principles that underlie the faith. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is completely reasonable to sacrifice your entire life in pursuit of this noble goal. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Wherever you are in life is not good enough. Renew your mind and prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and every member's one of another. I want to point something out to you. Many religions around the world have a concept of reincarnation. We don't have uh, the same concept of reincarnation. We have a concept of coming back to heaven um, or being raised up to heaven after our death. We also have a concept of national reincarnation. You see the people of Israel constantly fall and are lifted back up by prophets speaking the truth and doing right and following the will of the Lord. That is also applicable to the Christian church body where we fall and we need revivals. And here, all of us, one body, we have to remember that revival happens through this body. Having then gifts according to deferring different gifts according to the grace that is given to us whether prophesy let's prophesy according to the proportion of faith or ministry let's wait on our ministering or he that teacheth on teaching or he that exhorteth on exhortation basically what it's saying here is whatever you do do it as well as you possibly can do your thing well let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. These are the Christian values. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. And how, where do you find more hospitable people than in the primitive Baptist church? That's right. If that's not evidence of what we have here, then I don't know what is. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. What a revolutionary idea that did not exist prior to, the, to this scripture being written recompense to no man evil for evil provide things honest in the sight of all men if it be possible if it be possible as much as lieth within you live peaceably with all men sometimes it's not possible sometimes we are called to defend ourselves and that's reasonable and that's it's in fact it's holy and good to defend what is holy and good dearly beloved avenge not yourselves But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, again, this doesn't mean that justice isn't something that we strive for as a community. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Jews are called to form bodies of judgment to have a due process so that people who sin egregiously are punished. We are called as a collective to punish those who do evil. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is the Christian tradition in a single chapter of the Bible. I pray that we would continue to uphold the traditions of our faith, that we would continue to reform the church to make it better and more holy
1: as Jesus did in his time. Thank you very much for your time. On first and third weekends, we have the service in New York on Saturdays and then uh, Mount Carmel Sunday morning and then generally uh, Columbia Sunday evening. And it's like going to a three-day church service in almost three different areas or nearly three different states, but definitely three different areas. And by the time that the last service is over on Sunday evening, I'm beat. And I just look forward to getting home and chilling. I'm not going to tell you how I chill. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I do just kind of think back over the blessings of the weekend. But after Columbia, as uh, I was getting in the car last week, uh, I got a text. And it was from Elsa. And she said, We've had our new little boy, Carmine. Would you like to come by the hospital and see him? And would you like to hold him? Well, all of a sudden, I forgot all about being tired. <laughs> and I took off just, to, and it was just perfect because I was leaving Columbia and took off and went right straight to the hospital. And it was such a blessing. To see the the little newborn baby that God had blessed Elsa and Colvin with. The happy grandparents were there. Van and Abby from Pennsylvania. And we had a great time visiting, thinking about all the good memories we'd had through the years at Southampton. We remembered back when Elsa was just about a little girl herself. And now she's a wonderful godly mother. So those are some of the happiest times in the ministry. And I have a lot of wonderful memories of all these little ones that have been born. And being able to be at the hospital oftentimes and get to hold them get to watch their parents bring them to church the first time so I want to talk just a few minutes about children Psalm 127 I'm not real concerned about what the popular view is of children doesn't concern me one bit I want my thinking to be in line with God's thinking. And so I want to look at how God views children. And then I want our view to be that way. Psalm 127 verse 6 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. Heritage is a blessing. It's a gift. It's a treasure. It says, lo, children are a blessing, a heritage of the Lord. It's interesting, but it says right here that children are of the Lord. So that's really important for us to understand right now that the children are are something that comes from God, that God blesses with children. It says children are an heritage of the Lord. And it says, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And then it defines the children and gives a little bit of uh, indication about the parents. "As As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. An arrow is uh, something that you aim and shoot at a target. You have a target in mind, and you aim the arrow to uh, arrive at that target. Brother Mark had a a bow and arrow that he hunts with. And I thought, boy, that'll be so neat to to uh, to try to uh, shoot this arrow that he has. And so he handed me the bow, and and I'm trying to pull it back, and 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 it just stuck. I said, I think it's broken. He, I think he said, No, I think you're weak. <laughs> There's a little clutch on there, and you got to get past a certain point. I couldn't even pull the arrow back, much less aim the arrow. But he says right here that parents have the blessing of aiming the the uh, the arrow at the mark at the target, and it says children are a blessing from the Lord; they're as arrows in the hand of a mighty man. So are children of the youth, and then it says something right here. It says, "Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them." Now, for some folks, maybe one does feel your quiver up. Uh, It did for Julianne, didn't it? Uh, Brother Phil came home and Sister Marcia and uh, Julianne was uh, their only child at the time. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. Julianne's about three or four years old. And and they said, Julianne, what would you think about, about us bringing you home a little brother. And she put her hands on her hips and she said, I can think about a thousand reasons why not. (laughs) Isn't that right? (laughs) So one may fill your quiver up. It says right here, happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. And I think this is sort of fast forwarding right here. The role of children for parents, even as they get older, when parents can't fend for themselves, that oftentimes if God blesses with children, the children can fend for the parents. It says that even their enemies, that they'll speak with the enemies in the gate. And, 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 and if you go over to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it tells us that uh, one of the, the greatest enemies that we have in old age is failing health and all that goes along with it. And so what he's saying right here is that when you get to that point in your life, it's a great blessing if God's blessed you with children that are going to fend for you at that time. Then he comes down and he says in uh, Psalm 128, he says, uh, blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. He mentions this twice right here in uh, Psalm 128. I ask you, why do you serve God? Is it not because you fear God? I mean, God's been so good to us. Don't you occasionally fear God? He mentions it twice right here. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways, for thou shalt eat the labor of thy hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. And then verse 3 says, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants around about thy table. It says, Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. And then he says, the, the Lord shall bless thee out of Zion and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. He's, he's talking about a host of blessings right here. And he says, even the children that are gathered around the table, that are gathered around the house, that the children are a blessing from the Lord. And he says, the man that is serving God, that God blesses him with children. He says he may just bless them with some grandchildren. Brother Mark, this verse is for you and sister Christy. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. Sister Peggy, that one's for you. You can look over here. She said uh, before church, she said, isn't that a beautiful sight? And I knew she was talking about her three little grandbabies right there. What the psalmist is telling us right here is that children and even your children's children are a blessing from the Lord. Now. When did we become a blessing from God? In Psalm 139. Psalm 139, I'll just read read through. There's two uh, areas right here that I'd like to look at. Psalm 139. And by the way, there are not any surprises with God. There's not. God knew us from before we were born. We have evidence of that. Because he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. So he knows his people, he knows where they are. Now let's look at this. Great, great verses right here. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me, when? Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Boy, isn't that a fact that we're fearfully and wonderfully made? I mean, we are crafted by God, by his hands, fashioned by God. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. It is marvelous. The creation of, uh, of a human being is a marvelous work, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great handiwork of God. My substance was not hid from thee when I made in when, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all of my members were written which in continuance were fashioned as if as 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 yet there was none of them. And then he just steps back and he says, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. He said, if I should count them, if I should count them, they're more in number than the sand. when I wake, I am still with thee. So he says right here. That we were fearfully and we were wonderfully made in the eyes of God. Now let's look at this next one. I think, if my memory serves me right, that Steve and Kathy will remember this verse in Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm not sure if it was Sister Kathy or if it was Sister Denise Or someone else, but way back, we went to Washington, D.C. in January, cold, cold time. And we went to the Right to Life gathering, and we heard the speaker speak. And Sister Kathy or Sister Denise or someone had banners with this verse on it right here. This is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, Jeremiah 1 5, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So the Lord is telling Jeremiah right here, he says, I knew you before you were born. I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. I knew you in my mind. I knew you in the history of time. And I had your name inscribed in my book. And you have been known by me even from before the foundation of the world. So if we're going to see it God's way, God's way is this way. God knew us from before we were conceived by our parents. God knew us way back then. And then when we were conceived by our parents and we were in our mother's womb, God began on day one fashioning us and making and creating us in his image and in his likeness now here's a supporting verse right here if there was only this one verse in the scriptures to convince me that it is a viable human being at conception it's this verse right here i'm not going to i'm not going to quote it for time's sake but i just want to run over there if you will in in Luke chapter one, verse thirty six and verse thir- uh, forty four, when uh, when uh, Elizabeth was carrying uh, uh, John in her womb, John was six months along in his mother's womb, and Mary was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Six months later, while John was six months into his mother's womb and Mary then was conceived of the Holy Ghost, a a, a miracle in itself. And when Mary comes to Elizabeth, who had been barren and now was carrying John and Mary comes in to share with her cousin the news about the Savior Christ It says two different times while John was six months along in his mother's womb. It says two different times right here that when Mary came in rejoicing with the good news that she was with the Christ child as she came in to share this good news. It says that John, six months along in his mother's womb, leapt for joy at the salutation of the word of Jesus Christ. So John had not only natural life, but John had spiritual life as well. He wouldn't have rejoiced in that message if he hadn't had spiritual life. So that gives me, it gives me a whole lot of evidence right here that God can even quicken his child by his spirit, not only in giving them natural life, but God can even quicken and bless an infant before they're born naturally with spiritual life as well. God is sovereign when he quickens the child. You know, it's a great blessing when you have a little child and God's already been there and given them spiritual life as well. Not only natural life, but spiritual life. And that's what he did with John right here. John leapt for joy in his mother's womb. Says it twice that his mother recognized that. What a great, great blessing. So we've looked at it in the verses that say that God... Formed us, God knew us, God created us, and we are important to God. We are. And we ought to align our thinking to God's thinking. Now, one of my dearest friends, I'm so thankful to have some really good friends, is Brother Zach Guess long time ago, folks used to have a whole lot of kids. And I'm going to just, I'm going to go through this hopefully in about five minutes and really I'll do it at that guest speed. So hopefully you can, can get it all right here. Back in the depression days, a lot of folks, m- most, most young folks probably didn't know what depression means. It's not a mental state that they're talking about, but it was a physical e- experience. A financial adversity. Brother Farrington told us today of an old preacher that when he would come see him and Brother Farrington say, how are are you? And he said, well, do you want to know physically, mentally or financially? (laughs) Well, financially, it was pretty bad. It was. But my uh, my grandmother had seven children. And the last one was my mother. And. My grandmother was 42 when she had my mother. My mother was not an expected child. But I tell you what, I sure am thankful that she had her. Because I wouldn't be here. So I have a real vested interest in that seventh child. On my grandparent's side, on the other side, every time I go to Texas, I try to go by and see my aunt, who will be 100 years old in April, and her older sister's 102 years old, and the last time that I went... We just had a wonderful conversation. And I said, tell me about your brothers and sisters. And she said, all 13 of them. (laughs) I said, yes, I'd like to hear about them. She knew their first name, their middle name. She knew about them. And we had a wonderful time talking about all 13 uh, in her family. I said, tell me about my granddad. Tell me some things that you know. It was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. You don't see a lot of large families today. You don't. Brother Zach, Brother Zach he's taught me a lot of things. He's, he, he taught me that, um, he said, I've, I've, I've got the very best insurance policy. He said, I'm a lot older than my wife. Uh, I'm not sure how much older, but he's almost 80 and his wife's probably still in her 60s. So there's some gap there that uh, difference. But he said, my wife, we thought, was going to be barren because we went so long without having children. He said, we begin to pray that God would, would bless us with a child. And I believe that they've been blessed with 10 children or 11. The last one they named Mercy. So, uh, but, uh, but they were blessed with a whole bunch of children. And he said, Brother Stephen... I have the best life insurance policy that money can buy for my wife. I'm older and if I pass away, my wife will be well taken care of because I have the very best insurance policy money can buy. He said, I've taught every one of my children that individually and corporately, it is their responsibility to see that their mother is well taken care of and never wants for a thing, and those children do rise up and honor their mother and their father. He said I went to a church meeting and somebody told me says, "Brother Zach, you just shouldn't have had all those kids." He said I had them all gathered around me, and he said uh, it's too expensive. And he said, they told me that to raise a child, it's about a million dollars. And he said, I realized that if that's truly the case, I ought to be about ten million dollars in debt right now. But he said, somehow God has blessed me to raise them on a preacher's income. And said, God blessed us to be able to do it. He said, the lady that came up to him said, you should not have had all those children. They're all playing around. He said, dear sister, would you just look at them and you tell me which one of them I shouldn't have had. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Naomi didn't have a son. But she had a daughter-in-law named Ruth. And Ruth, in her old age, had a desire that was put on her heart to care for Naomi. And he said that, and and I'm going to subscribe to this one. I don't have a whole lot of kids lined up to take care of me when I get old. But you know what? I'm praying that God will put it on somebody's heart at least to carry me to church or sing a hymn or something like that. I told Brother Danny recently, I said, you know, I've told my mother a number of times that that if I die an early death, that it'll probably be a car wreck or a plane crash. And he said, well, preacher, you don't have to really worry about that that much longer. (laughs) So that was really encouraging that I take that one off my list. I don't have to worry about dying an early death, you know, at this point in my life. But Naomi was complaining because she didn't have anybody to take care of her. And the folks told her, said, Naomi said, you have Ruth and God put it on Ruth's heart to care for you and said Ruth is going to take better care of you than if you had seven sons. If you have one son, you're not supposed to have to worry about a thing in old age. But if you have seven sons, you you're you're on easy street in old age. And she said Ruth has it in her heart to care for you In old age, I have to tend to believe that for those of us that don't have a bunch of kids lined up, to take care of us in old age, that God, through His mercy, will see if there's a need and He'll put it on the heart of somebody. On the other hand, oftentimes you meet older folks that they may have a whole lot of people in their family and not any of the kids have a desire. They haven't been taught. They haven't been taught by example. I've been told, be careful about how you take care of your parents because your children are watching. Sister Tracy caring for her mom Right in the same property. Her kids. All five of them are watching. If Brother Justice goes home to be with the Lord before Sister Tracy. They've been taught by example. To care for their mom. They have. So I believe that God does bless with. With them. Now now let me just mention this while we're here. Some folks say. Well. Is it Okay. To end the life of a child if the child is not normal or perfect. Well, you know what? Not any of us are really normal or perfect. But some are just a little more obvious than others. Elder Sonny Piles said this, and I'll end with this right here. Elder Sonny Piles is almost 80 years old. His wife is like 81 years old. Most everybody here knows Sunny Piles. He is almost or maybe a genius, mentally speaking. He has a son, David, who has a photographic memory that is probably a genius as well, at least with the scriptures. He has a daughter that is super, super smart, on target. She's got cancer and she's dealt with that for a long time, but she is super smart. But he also has a son named Danny. And Danny is what Brother Sonny refers to as a special needs child. And he's about, I'm, I'm saying, the mental capacity of Danny's probably maybe two. And he's probably in his 60s now. And Danny has lived with Brother Sonny and Sister Sarah since he was born. And now, in their old age, they're still caring for Danny. If they put the food in front of him and cut it up, he can feed himself. But he can't do a whole lot more than that. He can walk, he can't communicate other than the expressions that he gives. And they know what he means, and he responds. This last time that I went to Tyler, one of, the, one of the great blessings that I had in going to Texas is that Brother Sonny Piles was there. I hadn't seen him in a long time and got to see Brother Sonny Piles. He's now a little old man stooped over. It's not the strong, able-bodied man that I remembered, but he's a little old man that stooped over. And his little wife is even smaller than he is. And they're still caring for their son, Danny. And this is what he said. He said, you know, I love all my children. But he said, when you have an opportunity to care for somebody more than you normally would. Whether it's an old person. Whether it's a young person. He said, somehow God gives you an extra amount of love. And you love them more. If you're caring for them. Your love is growing more and more. And I knew what he was talking about. He had spent his life. Caring for Danny. And he'll tell you himself what a blessing. That Danny is to them. I've heard him preach sermons and he said I've learned so many lessons. From my son Danny. Danny is a gift and a blessing from God. Now, Elder Compton told us, and he taught us many great lessons, but he said that when his wife went home to be with the Lord, that he had a really hard time with it because he missed her so much after being married 76 years. And he said, "Then all of a sudden, God blessed me with a degree of reconciliation when he reminded me That my wife was the end of a great blessing. Not only are your wives and your husbands a great blessing and gift from God, but your children are a blessing and gift from God. God's the one that gives the blessings. That's how God sees children. God sees them as a blessing, God intends them to be a blessing. Sometimes we're rebellious. I mean, um, I look back and the hard time I gave my parents, and it didn't always appear to be a blessing. But we should realize that it's a gift and a blessing from God. He says, "Children are a heritage, a blessing from God." Some people motivate. Kids, I, I see it maybe at the grocery store or the billing station or places like that. They motivate the kids by tearing them down and speaking awful to them. When in essence we ought to realize that they're a gift and a blessing from God. May God bless you.
0: We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.